Hi, Will. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, my pleasure. I'm excited about it. Just to give our audience a little bit of background, Will is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Concur Reference Data. And Concur's mission is to transform the $1.8 billion fixed income reference data market by utilizing blockchain technology to create a reference data industry utility that will significantly lower costs while improving speed and data quality. Will's also one of the first contributors we've had on the podcast who is working in the blockchain space. So really excited to have you here today, Will, helping us explore a new area that we haven't really dug into yet. Excited to be here. I think it's a really exciting um, area, particularly in fintech. And I'm glad that you guys are learning about it So and thinking about it, because I think it's going to be really transformative for, for many industries. Just to give everyone a roadmap of where we're headed today, Will will just start off by giving us a little bit of background on his career and how he got to where he is today. And then, then we'll talk about some basic underlying concepts like distributed ledgers and blockchain and ultimately move into talking a little bit more about Will's company and where he sees the industry heading over the next few years. So Will, why don't you just kick us off with a little bit of background about yourself and, and how you became interested in the space? Sure. So um, I have an MBA from Stanford. Prior to my MBA, I had a little bit of an unusual path, uh, but part of that included me working at an investment bank, but in their IT department, which was not my educational background at all. Um, but I, I had some of that experience working around market data and trading platforms for Wall Street banks. Um, after graduating from Stanford, most of my career since then has been or had been in corporate strategy roles in fintech, primarily at Thomson Reuters, which does a number of things. But the half of the company that I was uh, part of the corporate strategy team in was the financial information and financial technology piece. Um, and then spent a short period of time doing corporate strategy at First Data, so uh, electronic payments, different part of fintech. Um, about nine months ago, I uh, came up with an idea that used blockchain to solve a longstanding problem in the financial information space around uh, reference data, and particularly fixed income re security level reference data. And um, found a business partner, a former colleague of mine at Thomson Reuters, who had independently had the same thoughts about a business opportunity using blockchain. Uh, so we started a company in August of 2016. And that's what I've been doing um, in the months since then, is, is building up that company from scratch, starting to get our first technology built, and, and going through the challenges around funding and all those types of things. Before we dive into specifics about your company, maybe you can just uh, give us a sense for how you define a distributed ledger and how does that play into this whole area? Sure. So distributed ledger, which is a term you hear a lot when talking about blockchain um, and is closely related to the concept of blockchain, but that's been around for a long time. So certainly precedes um, Bitcoin. And the idea is um, rather than a, so first of all, a ledger is just a database. It's just, you know, it, some of its main uses, including Bitcoin, it's like an accounting ledger but really we're just talking about a database. And a distributed ledger as opposed to a centralized um, ledger or database is that each participant in the community or the network has their own copy of that database. 
um, as opposed to everyone linking into the same central copy. So if you think of like an Oracle database or something, it would be a typical centralized database. Um, and the tricks around having a, a distributed ledger function, and, and we'll get into blockchain and how it solves that in a bit, um, is that that ledger needs to be kept in sync across all of those network participants because they all have their own copies. So how do you ensure that the copy you're looking at is the same as the copy as someone else is looking at who might be a counterparty in a trade or otherwise would need to be sure that they're looking at the same information? So when it comes to the differences between distributed ledgers and central ledgers, can you talk a little bit about the evolution from traditional central ledger to the distributed ledgers that we're seeing more and more today? Well, I think a lot of that's been driven by the concept of blockchain. And in, 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 I don't know if now is the right time, but we could get into what makes a blockchain a specific type of uh, decentralized ledger or distributed ledger work. You know, as I said, the idea had been around for a long time, but it hadn't gained widespread use for a few reasons. One of which is the problem I articulated already, which is the challenge of making sure that your ledger is kept in sync with other people's ledgers. Um, it's also just not a very efficient way to store data um, and manage changes to data. So if, first of all, you're replicating a database, so if it's a very large database, not that storage is very expensive, but you're replicating it many, possibly thousands or hundreds of thousands of times uh, instead of just having a single one. And it could very easily get out of sync. Um, and those are reasons why, in many use cases, centralized ledgers remain probably the better solution over a blockchain or a, or a decentralized ledger. But it was really with the um, innovations that came with Bitcoin um, and the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper that describes the working of Bitcoin that solved um, some of those key issues, um, as well as other issues uh, around trust and settlement that are really crucial to the concept of, of blockchain that has brought uh, this concept of distributed ledger to many more use cases where people are starting to see it as a way to solve a bunch of longstanding problems or inefficiencies in various markets. So can, can you explain to us a little bit more about what exactly a blockchain is? It, my understanding is that it's a type of distributed ledger, but what does that mean for the purposes of some of the applications we're seeing today? Sure. So as you said, a blockchain is a type of a distributed ledger. Um, the way I think about it is it's a cryptographically linked chain of time-stamped snapshots of what's in that database. And the cryptography not only links one snapshot in time to the next snapshot in time, but, but does so in a way that would make it very difficult or, or maybe even impossible to falsely edit a database entry you know, outside the mechanisms of how that blockchain updates. Um, there are, the way I look at it are three core components to that. So first of all, it is a distributed ledger. The different participants, which are often referred to as nodes, have their own copy of the database with all the information in it. There is a consensus mechanism that has rules that are put in place that define under what circumstances that ledger can get updated and how the different nodes in the network reach consensus about the validity of those changes and then what the new correct state of that, that ledger is. And then once they've reached that consensus, the third piece is achieving this cryptographic immutability, which has to do with in, um, hashing the previous block and putting that hash into the new block and then creating a hash of that through public and private key cryptography that operates in a way that allows 
the network um, to very easily look at that and, and do a quick calculation that says, yep, that's correct, but impossible to back out of that calculation to go into like a previous entry and change it. Um, and that's how it achieves that kind of um, security to the network. And when you say hashing, can you just provide a little bit more context around what that means? Again, my, my understanding is that a hash is basically a cryptographic summary of data that is added to the blockchain. Is that correct? Or, or do you think about it differently? No, that, that's correct. And I'm not, I'm not a te deep technology expert, yeah, but, um, and certainly not around cryptography. But basically what hashing does is it creates a 256-bit code, which is usually represented as a string um, of letters and numbers. I'm not even sure how many, but um, a, a, a longish string of letters and numbers. Um, and you can take any set of digital information and run it through this hashing algorithm and come up with that 256-bit uh, sequence, which is essentially unique to those inputs. And again, those inputs could be anything. So, and any, anyone who takes the exact same input and applies the same algorithm against it will come up with the same hash. So that's the why it's easy to check. But any changes to the inputs, even a very minor change, would result in a totally different hash that wouldn't look anything like the other one and you wouldn't even know that they're similar um, or, or different. So I like to think of it as you could take, I could take the entire written works of Shakespeare and run it, you know, however many, many, many pages that is in digital form and run this hashing algorithm and I'd come up with a 256-bit uh, string of information and if you took the same complete works of, of William Shakespeare and ran the same hashing algorithm against it, you'd come up with the same one. Now, looking at that, we would be able to say we came up with the same answer. So anyone else, any third party could say those two people came up with the same answer, so their inputs had to be the same. But that third party party wouldn't be able to look at that hash and know that that was the complete works of William Shakespeare or a digital photo or a you know, Guns N' Roses song or you have no idea what went into generating that hash. Um, which is why it's so secure. Got it. So the, the contents of what's included in the hash essentially remains private. Exactly. And, and, the reason, and the way in which the blockchains get linked, as I mentioned, is that each block gets hashed, gets, you know, gets converted into that string of, of letters and numbers. And then that string of letters and numbers becomes sort of the first entry in the next block. Um, so you know that they're linked but you can't look at that first string and sort of decipher what was in it. So it's a way to um, link the blocks together in a sequential chain that you can't sort of break from or, or go back and say, actually, you know, five blocks back, it should have been, there should have been different information in there because it would have result, that little bit of different information would have resulted in a different hash code four blocks back, which would have resulted in a different hash for three blocks back and, and so forth. Earlier in the, in the podcast, you mentioned Bitcoin. So can you help us link blockchain to Bitcoin? So what role does blockchain play in supporting a digital currency like Bitcoin? Sure. So uh, Bitcoin was the first blockchain. Um, and it, it, we'll get into these differences in a minute, I'm sure. But it's what's known as a public blockchain. And... What it's trying to solve, and by the way, if, if anyone's actually interested in the subject, go read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. It's eight pages long, and it's not really technical at all. I'm not a technical person. It's, if you like economics and game theory, you will find it really cool. So I, I think that's the best way to understand how this works. But my quick summary of it is the problem it's trying to solve is um, a, a problem 
of electronic payments where you don't have a central intermediary like a bank or a credit card company that is um, validating the transaction and settling it ultimately. Um, and the problem that it can occur in electronic payments is that um, without Bitcoin or blockchain uh, or a central intermediary is I could pay you 10 units of something and I could turn around and pay someone else those same 10 units of something and then who determines who actually should have gotten that um, and you know the reason why there's central intermediaries is they can say well no no, no 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 you paid matt first so that's where it should have gone it shouldn't go to this other person um and and set those settlement terms uh, bitcoin does that without a central intermediary through the workings of the blockchain and a set of effectively game theory economic incentives that are built in to uh, create the right outcome so um it's first of all set up a unit of payment, which is called the Bitcoin, which is a crypto token um, or a cryptocurrency. And uh, you can use that to pay somebody else and it settles when the block um, is created. So blocks are created every 10 minutes. And the way in which that transaction settles, and it settles in a way that's irreversible where the, the money has changed hands and you can't later then claim, oh, no, no, I didn't mean to spend that. Um, the way in which uh, that happens is that uh, there are a set of participants around in the network called miners. That's just people who have downloaded some software that's called the mining software. And uh, they look at the transactions that have been proposed in a 10 minute time period. And you can see as a miner, you can see into all the accounts. So it would know that an account with a string of, of an address, which is a string of letters and numbers, has enough Bitcoins in it to make a Bitcoin payment it's trying to make. Um, and you know, you can then see the uh, account number that it's going to and that that, that that amount of Bitcoin have gone into that new account. You don't necessarily know who those accounts belong to, but you know what the accounts are and you know what's in them. And the miners then, um, effectively put together all of the transactions that have happened in a 10 minute time period. And as I said, take the hash of the block that came previously and then hash all that together and say, this is the next block. And every other miner who's done the same activity and has tried to determine what are the valid transactions and has, has put them into their block would come up with that same answer. So they can say, yep, we came up with the same answer. So we're, we're in uh, consensus, we agree. All of the miners are basically verifying the transactions that have occurred. And when you say consensus, you mean consensus among all the different nodes or the different miners that the blockchain or the record of all of these transactions is indeed correct. Right. And so where the security comes in is say you're a miner and, and you want to do something fraudulent. You want to claim that actually that payment didn't go to that account over there. It actually goes into my own account and you try to transfer that money to you. You would then include that as one of the transactions in your block, and you would then hash that along with the hash code from the previous block, and you would come up with an answer, and that answer would not be the same as what other uh, miners did, because they wouldn't have done that fake transaction to, you, to, in, to me in this case. Um, and so the goal of the Bitcoin uh, process, the consensus process, is that you need to get more than 50%, essentially. And that's what the network agrees is the correct answer. Um, and that's why, if you've ever heard of the term of 51% attack, 
the only way to create fraud within the Bitcoin network is if you control 51% of the mining activity. If you, to say, to get 51% essentially to agree that that money should have gone to my account as opposed to an, a different account. And given the amount of processing power and miners that exist in Bitcoin, that would be a economically unfeasible task to do in terms of the amount of, of money it would cost and the amount of computers you would have to, to buy or people you'd have to pay off. It just becomes sort of economically unfeasible to do, which is the main way in which the Bitcoin network itself is secure. So it's interesting that you bring up the topic of fraud. And, and I do want to get into the idea of risks to this system a little bit later in the discussion. But before we, we do that, I want to revisit something you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is the difference between public and private blockchain. So you mentioned that Bitcoin is a public blockchain. Can you just help us understand what the difference would be between, say, a public blockchain and, and a private blockchain? Who, who uses private blockchains? Sure. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two um, most well-known public blockchains. And the, what makes it public is that anyone can download the software to, be a, to have a, a, an account or to be a miner um, on those networks. They're, they're separate networks. Uh, all you have to do is download the software and start running it. No one else needs to know who you are. Um, you know, you don't have to, you know, there's no KYC, know your customer element to this. It could be anyone. It's one of the reasons why banks are somewhat uncomfortable about it. Um, but there's no uh, permissioning that needs to happen to allow you to start participating in it. The, the way in which the, um, the accuracy of the information in the network is maintained is through these economic and cryptographic processes that basically make bad behavior not pay um, economically. So you, you, are not, you are disincentivized to behave in, in any way other than honorably and correctly in the network. Uh, private blockchains um, have a permissioning layer. So you would know exactly who the nodes are and you would be able to say, yes, that person or that company can be a node in the network. I know who they are. Um, and so there needs to be some sort of permissioning authority that uh, is the gatekeeper, and then the and the network then becomes closed. You can't, you know, random people can't join just on a whim. They would have to be permissioned in. Could you give us an example of a use case where a private blockchain would make sense? So one of the uh, among the use cases that are being discussed in financial services have to do with settling of um, uh, securities transactions. And you could imagine a situation where, you know, only certain dealer banks are allowed to settle in a certain market um, by regulatory uh, fiat. And so if that's the case, and right now you have some centralized uh, clearing and settlement organization that's actually doing that and saying, okay, that's coming from Deutsche Bank. I know who that is. And that's going to Goldman Sachs. And I know who that is. Um, sort of controlling that process uh, around the regulations. But if you're trying to get rid of that central intermediary and have that transaction settlement process take place over a blockchain, which you could do technically, um, you might want to set up, a, in fact, you probably would want to set up a private or a permissioned blockchain where the only members allowed in the network are those predefined set of dealer banks that are allowed from, for regulatory reasons to, to uh, settle that type of transaction. Got it. So the permission blockchain could have more than two parties associated with it. It doesn't have to just be sort of a bilateral link between 
two companies, it could potentially involve a, a larger number of players. Yeah, exactly, and, and probably would in most cases. Okay. So I just want to dig a little bit deeper in, in this financial services theme that we've, we've started to discuss here. So say you're the CEO of a major global bank, and you're hearing a lot about blockchain technology. Like, how, how are you thinking about using that in your business? What are the major businesses within your company that you think it, it could impact? Sure. And banks are really interested in blockchain, um, putting money around running experiments um, very aggressively. Um, this goes back maybe a few too many years, but the banks did not respond this way to the internet. And I think have acknowledged since that they really missed the boat there. I don't think they're making the same mistake with blockchain. So a couple of things to think about in terms of what's going on in, in banking and in financial services is really since the 2008-2009 financial crisis, the banks have just been structurally less profitable than they were prior to the crisis, partly because of regulation, um, partly because of the way business models have matured. Um, and they're very uh, frustrated by that and looking to find ways to, to increase profitability. In addition, particularly over the last handful of years, they've seen fintech companies start encroaching on places they traditionally played and, and were profitable in. So they're seeing sort of new threats come in as well as sort of now a longstanding goal of increasing their profitability. And so when they're looking at blockchain, they're seeing a few things. Um, they're seeing potentially a quite big opportunity to fundamentally change a couple of different cost uh, structures in their industry and in their business. One of them is uh, eliminating central intermediaries that they have to pay to help them settle transactions. Um, and another is looking at non-differentiating back office processes uh, that are big cost centers for them, but they don't achieve strategic benefit from, but, but they still need to get done. So looking for ways that potentially they could neutralize that effort or make it run more efficiently. And they see blockchain as being a tool that could help deliver both of those and, and be sort of transformative in terms of the profitability. On the flip side, they also see that blockchain could be majorly disruptive to their businesses. There are many businesses banks participate in that they do consider core and strategically differentiating where they are, in fact, the central intermediary on transactions, particularly. And in a world where you're getting rid of central intermediaries um, and that maybe fintech startups are looking to, to um, provide a service a bank currently provides through a decentralized technology that operates at a much lower cost basis, you know, they can see uh, real danger in terms of core businesses becoming either commoditized or going away altogether as they get moved to this new technology. So they're very eagerly um, looking at this and, and trying to figure out where their benefits are and obviously trying to avoid getting core parts of their business disintermediated. And I would say the core areas that they're looking at now are, first of all, um, <laughs> boring back office processes, which is actually the business model that um, my company is looking at. But I think that's a big one. So they're looking at lots of these back office processes and how can we make these more um, efficient or, or shared across the industry. Um, payments is an obvious one, but lots of different types of payments, not just um, the kind of peer-to-peer -peer payments that Bitcoin has, but um, remittances overseas, B2B um, uh, -B payments, um, there's a number of different areas in, in payments that are quite interesting. Uh, future of sort of thinking about how credit cards work, for example. Uh, trade finance and supply chain management 
um, and, and the roles that banks play in that for managing risk and processing payments uh, and providing insurance are all really interesting when it comes to, to blockchain and how that could transform that market. And then there's a whole host of areas in capital markets, particularly when we think about um, settlement of trades uh, of securities and then actually what the securities are and how they are managed over their life cycle, which is, I think, a really exciting area. So let's dig in a little bit more on that theme and talk specifically about your company and what exactly is fixed income reference data and, and who are the major players in the ecosystem that depend on it and use it? Sure. So fixed income reference data is all of the information that describes what that fixed income instrument is and how it behaves. And that information is uh, originally recorded in what's known as a prospectus, which is published in the US to the SEC, but is in, I think in every country published to a regulator. Um, and that's a way for any potential investor to be able to read through a very legalistic document that explains what is this instrument, uh, what are its terms and conditions, and how is it going to behave over its life. Um, very straightforward. That information is freely available. You can go onto the SEC's Edgar website. You can download any perspectives that you want. You can read it for yourself. It's free. But it's not in a very usable form. It's in pages and pages and paragraphs and paragraphs of, of legal prose. Um, and there isn't a con totally consistent format. People publish it in different ways or you know, different law firms have slightly different language around, or around essentially the same terms and conditions from uh, instrument to instrument. So in the market, um, so after these securities are, are issued, so that gets published to the SEC uh, when the security gets issued. And then if you are a buy side fund, for example, that ends up holding that security in your portfolio, um, along with thousands and thousands and thousands of other securities, in order to run your um, mid and back office processes, as well as some front office processes, but primarily these sort of unsexy mid and back office processes like risk management, and portfolio accounting and reporting and valuation work and rebalancing and all those types of things. You need to understand what these terms and conditions of these instruments are. And for fixed income, it's more complicated than say an equity. So fixed income is sort of where these terms and conditions really come into play and are, and are most challenging for these customers. It's not reasonable for the funds that hold you know, 20,000 bonds to go find 20,000 prospectuses and read through them and try to figure out, okay, that's the coupon rate and that's the issue date and this is how it could be called under what circumstances. So instead an industry is developed from information providers such as Thomson Reuters where I used to work and Bloomberg which you guys all know about and IDC and those are the main ones and then a handful of other sort of second tier players where they go and collect this information um, that's freely available and put it into a data model so it's machine readable and then sell that as a data feed to um, to these buy side customers so that they can just plug in this data feed into all of those mid and back office software applications and have them run basically automatically where it can do all the sorts of calculations and risk assessments that you need to do based on all those parameters that are fed to it in a machine um, to machine readable format. Um, that process of getting it out of prospectuses and putting it in a data model results in inaccuracies and not a huge amount of inaccuracies, but enough that it Customers know that there are problems in this file. And in order to get it clean enough that they can do things like report on their portfolios to the government without errors in it, they have to go in and like scrub it and go look and try to find where the errors are and then fix the errors. And it also, it also seems to me like even a small error in this type of information could have 
really major implications for the people who use it. So. Exactly, exactly. Um, so, uh, so each of these customers of the service, so they buy, the, they rent the service, essentially, they pay a subscription to Bloomberg or to Thomson Reuters or multiple ones of these guys. Um, and then in addition to paying for that, they've built out back offices or have offshored or BPO'd that capability, but in any event, spend a fair amount of money on mostly armies of people that are going through this file and trying to find the errors and fix them. There's also some automated stuff that spits out errors. And, but each fund is doing this in their own back office and no one regards this creating a clean record as being strategically differentiating. It's just something they have to do so they can you know, run their business. So it's a pretty inefficient market structure where there's a lot of cost being spent on a repeated function across the industry that nobody's deriving strategic benefit from. And we talked a bit about sort of the key characteristics of a blockchain. When you start talking about, wow, all of, lots of different players need access to a database that they trust as being correct, that has a golden record of data that they you know, um, have faith is the correct information in. Um, if some, you know, as new data comes out, that there is some sort of consensus achieved that the new data is correct. You know, all you start hearing those terms and you start thinking, well, that sounds a lot like the mechanisms of a blockchain. And so what our business is looking to do is to, to solve that problem of inaccurate data and only achieving a golden record um, behind, you know, the firewall within these different firms and having those golden records actually not necessarily be completely the same as the next golden record down the block, which can create further reconciliation errors downstream. Um, using a blockchain to uh, allow the community itself to mutualize the effort of error identification and error correction, for the community itself to reach consensus when they think a record is in fact correct. And then once they've agreed that it's correct, it gets locked into the blockchain through that mechanisms of cryptography so that at any future point, they can go look at their database and know that, yeah, that data is the data that was, we all agreed was correct at, the point, at that specific point in time. And so there's a golden record that then they have in their copy of the distributed database. And they know that not only is that the one that was agreed to, they know that any counterparties or any other participants in the community is looking at the exact same golden record. Um, so solving those challenges around reconciliations, around the amount of uh, repeated back office cleansing and, nor and normalizing work that's currently done in the industry and moving that instead to this sort of shared platform where they collectively do that. And just to get a, an understanding of the types of institutions that might be involved with this. So we're talking investors themselves. So like mutual funds, pension funds, hedge funds. But then would we also be talking about institutions like maybe a custodian or a fund yeah. administrator or even like maybe a risk advisory service or something like that? So totally. So, um, so on this sort of consuming of the data side, you know, ultimately we're talking about mutual funds, pension funds, hedge funds, but there is this entire um, industry set up to help support those funds. Um, and you mentioned the primary ones. So um, custodians, trustees are another one. These are often very well-known big banks like JP Morgan or State Street or Bank of New York Mellon that play these roles where they have to serve a large number of clients and they have to do processing on their behalf on what's in their portfolio. So they end up seeing all those same securities that their customers have in their portfolios as well. So they have very sophisticated back office operations to do a lot of this cleansing work, but it's a huge cost for them, as you can imagine. In addition, there are uh, risk management providers that also want to see all of these instruments and then provide risk analytic products uh, to funds and to their downstream customers. And uh, they too would, you know, 
it behooves them to know that the inputs that they're taking uh, to do that risk analytics are the same as the inputs that their customers are using in order to do their own, you know, to merge that risk analysis they're getting with their own portfolio analytics that they're doing on their site. And just to bring this back to one of the topics we were discussing a little bit earlier. So would this be an example of a permission blockchain where all the these various parties would be permissioned into the blockchain for the purposes of seeing and using the data? Yes, we are currently currently working uh, on it as a permission blockchain where there would be a um, sort of permissioning, authenticating uh, function that currently we're playing. But ultimately, we would like to make a distributed function of the community itself that evaluates, you know, who's trying to come into the network. Are they appropriate to be in the network or not? In addition, there are different roles you can play in our network. Um, So you could be a publisher where you are a sell side bank that's issuing a new security and you want your security terms and conditions of your security to be uh, part of our data service. So you could publish into our data service a new record that then goes out to the community to be validated. You could be a validating node where um, you see any new securities um, information that's come in and you can review it and then you vote. Um, Or you could be a consuming only node and that would be accepting the wisdom of the other validating members of the network and just saying, I don't want to run, you know, I don't want to participate in the validation work. Um, I'll just consume the end result, trusting them to have gotten it right. And you can imagine different commercial terms and, and reward schemes that incentivizes the different participating behaviors. So um, publishing you know, would be an incentivized action. Um, doing the work of validating data and error correcting it would be something that would get incentivized. Um, and just sitting back and consuming, you would maybe be paying more because you wouldn't have been um, adding value into the community by doing that other work. So I also want to talk a little bit about Consensus, which is a, a venture group that your company is a part of. C- can you just talk to us a little bit about their role in the ecosystem and how you partnered with them and, and what it's like working with them? Yeah, absolutely. So it's Consensus, spelled S-Y-S at the end, consensus.net. They are a, a venture studio. So it's a combination of a incubator and a development shop. Um, and a collection of businesses, which I can describe in a little bit more detail. But the background of Consensus is really interesting. So the founder of Consensus is this guy, Joe Lubin. If you are paying attention to the Ethereum space at all, you'll almost certainly know the name. He was one of the original um, people who wrote the Ethereum code. It was um, the concept of Ethereum and how it was uh, how it would work was laid out by a teenager who's now, I still think, in his maybe mid-20s, uh, Vitalik Buterin. Uh, who's a computer science genius. Um, And he was taking the essential concept of Bitcoin and saying, well, what if instead of just trading a token of value, which is the crypto token Bitcoin, you could exchange packets of code. Um, And you could then envision a network that not only is a mechanism of payment, there is a crypto token um, called Ether that's part of the Ethereum network, but it's also what he describes as a world computer where you can essentially have code being sent among parties and then that code executing additional code um, that executes additional code uh, based on uh, what they call smart contracts. And then you use the payment vehicle of the Ether token as a way to fund that um, activity and the storage that needs to happen around that. But you can create really interesting decentralized business models um, off of the Ethereum network way beyond 
payments. Um, payments would be sort of the most basic use case, but um, there are really, really dynamic and interesting uh, use cases currently being developed. So that's managed by something called the Ethereum Foundation, which is a nonprofit. Joe Lubin, having helped build the and launch Ethereum, then recognized the need to build um, capabilities and infrastructure on top of this basic uh, Ethereum blockchain set of capabilities. Um, the way I like to think about it is, you know, when uh, the internet started, or the commercial internet started, it was very difficult to build a website, and you would have to have a fair amount of technical knowledge to be able to build a website. And over time, people have built infrastructure layers on top of TCP/IP. That's um, including things like Java and other things that have allowed very sophisticated applications to be built on top of uh, the internet. And now I can go to Squarespace without having any technical coding abilities at all, and I can build a website in 25 minutes. So he's envisioning the need for a similar set of tools, um, infrastructure layer tools, as well as um, sort of business enablement tools to be built on top of this very base layer Ethereum blockchain in order to enable um, the kind of businesses that he and I and others believe can be built on top of uh, the Ethereum network. And so to do that, he started this company called Consensus to identify and build and foster those types of companies that are building capabilities that will help grow this as a, um, as a viable tool for um, all types of commerce and industry and nonprofit work and other things. So the way it works is they have either in-house developed or in our case, um, externally identified uh, business ideas that they think are important and relevant and exciting and fund them uh, in money or in uh, development capabilities and help uh, incubate them until they get to the point where they can stand up on their own. And then at, at which point they might need to raise money externally or they, or they bud off from the mothership and become a standalone company. Or maybe in certain cases where it's seen as really core infrastructure, they stay as a core part of consensus and, and a uh, service that then gets offered you know, to maybe other, other companies or other products to be built off of. Um, and so we were in talks with them trying to figure out our development roadmap. They thought our idea was really exciting and said, well, why don't you come in here and develop your idea as part of our collection of companies? and have funded us to do that, and we're building product. That's great. It sounds like a really interesting organization, and I just want to wrap up here by, by asking you one final question. So we talked a little bit earlier about potential risks associated with blockchain. Could you just elaborate on what you see are the major hurdles to blockchain adoption, and then maybe give us a, a just a very brief overview of, of where you see the industry going over the next few years? Sure. So in terms of adoption hurdles, um, there are several, and I, I don't think they're insurmountable, but among them include, there is a fair amount of platform uncertainty. Um, there are different networks. Ethereum is different than Bitcoin. There are a number of different initiatives around private or permissioned blockchains. The, the biggest or highest profile one uh, is Hyperledger, and then there's one based on Ethereum called the um, uh, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, uh, both of which are are developing uh, sort of platforms for private or permission blockchain development. Um, so if you're a company looking to build a blockchain, it's not necessarily clear which one you should build on. Um, and they're not great in terms of interoperability. I think interoperability will get solved. Um, or at least in part solved. Um, actually, one of the reasons why I like the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance so much is there's sort of at, at its base technology layer already a sort of natural way to, to build interoperability between a 
permissioned blockchain built on, on that Ethereum technology and the public Ethereum blockchain, which has the security of the very decentralized um, set of nodes and the sort of economic uh, security provided by the mining activity, which is similar to the one used for um, Bitcoin. Um, there's also a fair amount of technology limitations. I was saying that you know decentralized ledgers aren't the most efficient database model. In fact, are an inefficient database model. There's also throughput challenges for transactions. Sort of famously, uh, the example often used is that Bitcoin, uh, at its current block size, can essentially uh, process seven transactions a second. It's not exactly that because it happens in 10-minute chunks, but effectively, it's seven transactions a second. Visa, as a comparable, does 2,000 transactions a second, and at peak times can go up to, I think, 50-some thousand transactions. So that's a scale that right now Bitcoin or any other blockchain can't replicate. Um, there are lots of really in cool innovations that are coming out, uh, looking at different ways to scale that kind of transaction throughput. I, so I think that's solvable, but it's not. you couldn't replace uh, Visa with Bitcoin tomorrow. Um, with a lot of business models that are getting built off blockchain, they require a some level of collaboration or a network effect to work. Um, that's often trying to create a network effect among competing institutions. So, um, you know, even in, in my own business model, we need a community of publishers and validators. These are, you know, competing banks and competing funds with each other. So, is there an incentive for them to come together and do this? We think, in our case, there is. It's really compelling economic reasons why they'd want to do that, but that can always be challenging. Uh, there's a group called R3 that's a consortium of, I think, about 70 big banks right now. And so they're trying to solve that challenge for some banking blockchain business models by actually having a consortium of those banks. But I can imagine managing 70 highly competitive banks in a consortium could be a handful. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of regulatory uncertainty. Um, you know, When you think about capital markets use cases, there's a whole bunch of regulatory stuff that needs to get cleared um, around cryptocurrencies themselves. There's a bunch of regulations. As I said, banks basically aren't, for regulatory reasons in the US, aren't allowed to touch Bitcoin or Ether um, for a number of reasons, but it includes worries about um, KYC and AML, so know your customer and anti-money laundering to make sure there's not um, people from either countries that are blacklisted or organizations that are considered terrorist or organized crime that are participating in, in banking activity. Um, so for regulatory reasons, it's quite restricted. I will say that regulators um, seem to be very open to the technology overall. Uh, they see a lot of benefits to it in terms of providing better transparency, um, reducing risk in a number of areas, and providing uh, opportunities for regulators to be able to um, monitor markets in real time, as opposed to waiting to get reports after the fact, that could be a, a hugely beneficial transformation to the whole world of regulation. So I think they're very open to these changes, but um, it, you know, regulation doesn't always move super quickly. So there's, that's a bit of a hurdle. Yeah. And then just briefly, where you see the industry going over the next few years? Yeah, well, um, I, I think we're moving really quickly from uh, interesting experiments into actual, uh, you know, early stage versions of production products getting launched. Um, I think as a result, banks and other companies looking at blockchain are, you know, it's not going to be so much about playing in a sandbox. It's going to be more about looking at actual um, solutions getting delivered, which is really incredibly exciting. But I, I think that's what we're going to see over the next two years. Those solutions probably won't be things that are huge scale um, yet. Uh, for some of the reasons already talked about um, around the limitations. 
but uh, I think we'll start seeing, you know, having real world use cases that are bearing fruit around how this technology could be applied to some of those larger um, capabilities. Like for example, doing settlement of sort of, of asset classes that ha are not very liquid and are low volume, we'll start seeing that actually happening over blockchain. That would point the way to maybe this could happen for listed equities or other really high volume things down the road. Um, but you wouldn't start with listed equities just because of the volume. Right. Got you. Well, well, thanks. Well, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I think it was a really interesting discussion. You know, we, we covered some of the, the basics around, uh, you know, distributed ledgers and blockchains and also learned a little bit about your business. So um, thanks again for joining us and really appreciate your time. Great. My pleasure.